Hello, welcome to All Things Sedation. It's January 29th, 2020, and this is episode number four. This is our second part um, in a two-part discussion on understanding vital signs. My name is Michael Dare, and um, I represent a company called Sea to Sky Dental Ed, and our website is uh, dental-ed.com, so you can visit us there. We specialize in sedation training in minimal and both minimal and moderate sedation courses, uh, all the other types of support courses like advanced cardiac life support, uh, pediatric advanced life support, dental office emergencies. We also have the Canadian Dental Anesthesia Assistant course, which is uh, training for um, the uh, assistant members of a sedation team. We also have a Facebook group um, that's quite new. It's a private group uh, and it goes by the same title, All Things Sedation. So so join us. Um, the Facebook group, of course, is uh, for our private discussions about topics in, in the area of dental sedation. It's also for presenting information to you um, and for you to share information with others. So today we're going to uh, do part two of our vital signs talk and uh, the last parameters that you get on a uh, chairside monitor uh, that I'm going to discuss today are ECG and then uh, patient respirations, probably the most important vital sign of all as far as sedation since nearly all sedation related emergencies uh, with only a few exceptions are, um, are being generated by issues with respirations and the maintenance of an open airway. Uh, so first, let's look at ECG, the, uh, the monitoring of ECG during sedation. Pretty much, uh, it is the norm in hospital settings that uh, from the point of moderate sedation and upwards, that it would be a standard of care to also monitor a basic uh, three-lead, limb-lead ECG, usually looking at a patient's ECG in lead two. It is absolutely the standard for DEEP and GA, and probably uh, most often the standard definitely in moderate sedation. Now, the cost of monitoring someone's ECG is very low when you already own the machine. And again, most machines that have end-tidal CO2 also do come with ECG. So for a mere uh, number of cents, not even dollars, um, we can hook up our patients to ECG. And it is our standard of care in all of our moderate IV sedation training courses that we monitor ECG no matter what the age of the patient. There's several reasons for doing this. One is good patient optics. Uh, I always say in courses now that the patients are quite well educated, at least they're internet educated, and they are looking for indications to, um, to the fact that you're being very safe in their care uh, when they're in a dental setting being sedated. So I find the more parameters that we're measuring, um, the better the patient actually feels. And of course, you should always be explaining to your patients uh, what you're up to, uh, why you're monitoring a variety of parameters, and that it's about safety. And I'll, I'll often say things like, we will monitor you today identically as we would, say, in a hospital setting, in an emergency department, or wherever. And I find, um, without uh, exception, that it's uh, reassuring to the patient that we're taking the same level of care in monitoring as they would get in a hospital setting. Now, the problem with ECG is most practitioners, most dentists, most oral surgeons can have difficulty in maintaining ECG interpretation skills. 
So I'm just being honest. I teach a lot of ECG interpretation in the medical community and in the dental setting. I teach a lot of ACLS, as far as ACLS courses, uh, in both of these type of settings. And it is absolutely normal that for practitioners that are not working in certain high-volume critical care settings, skill sets like airway management and skill sets like being able to interpret ECGs um, uh, degrade quickly over time after taking uh, initial courses. I mean, day in and day out on a monitor in a, in a, in a dental office, um, you probably only see um, sinus rhythm and then occasionally atrial fibrillation for the most part. And it would be very rare to see the other rhythms um, that uh, you would typically be taught in an ECG interpretation course. So that then means that over time it becomes more and more difficult for you to be able to interpret ECGs. So one thing I'll talk about today is just, well, it's very easy to learn the rules of what makes an ECG dangerous versus trying to remember the interpretations of the uh, 30 to 40 possible rhythm combinations that would be the most uh, typical ECG rhythms um, that are produced by patients. So I'll come back to that in a bit. So ECG, of course, gives us heart rate information. Um, and most monitors will be set with both a bradycardia, a slow heart rate alarm, and just like the O2SAT, and a tachycardia, a fast heart rate alarm. Uh, most monitors will set uh, their um, will set the bradycardia alarm usually around 50 beats a minute, and then the tachycardia alarm will be set um, often around um, 120 to 140 beats a minute. This gives us information on whether the patient might be, say, uh, having a rapidly slowing heart rate going into a vasovagal type reaction or even having a, a sudden onset of a tachycardia indicating um, uh, a new uh, tachycardic arrhythmia, abnormal rhythm. Um, it also, of course, would indicate whether a patient has inadequate sedation or analgesia anesthesia on board uh, by seeing over time that their heart rate is creeping upwards, and perhaps along with other parameters like respiratory rate and um, blood pressure. So um, heart rate itself, and again, being gained from the ECG um, is one way to know how, how frequently the patient's heart is beating, uh, along with the pulse rate that we gain from pulse oximetry. Those two parameters give us an idea about uh, the rate of the patient's heartbeat. And from that, uh, there's a lot of information that can be gleaned. Now, a couple of things about alarms from ECGs. Artifact uh, from a, uh, a poorly connected ECG electrode um, will lead to very tall vertical slope lines that go right off the scale of the ECG paper or screen. Um, the machine's not that f smart, so if it gets readings like that, it'll count every vertical line as a, a heartbeat. So one of the first things when you have an alarm going off on ECG is to look at the quality of the ECG itself and to determine whether you're looking at a lot, a lot of artifact on the screen from, a, from an electrode that is, um, that is partially pulled off or completely off. So two common alarms would be a tachycardia alarm from artifact. 
when you look from the heart rate number, which could be extremely high, say two to 300 beats a minute, and you look over at the main screen, you see that instead of a repetitive complex that's occurring, um, at least uh, the QRS complex, um, that instead we have wildly undulating lines that are very, very high in amplitude going right off the scale, very vertical at times in their slope, and that you're looking at the classic appearance of artifact and the only thing the machine's doing is counting all those lines and giving you an incredibly um, false heart rate number. Of course, always check your patient. Is what you're seeing on the screen matching what you're seeing from the patient? Is it matching what you're seeing from the other parameters of your vital sign machine? So if your heart rate says 200 to 300 beats a minute and you see wildly undulating lines, yet your O2SAT has a nice regular waveform at 80, well then you know that the pulse rate is a nice solid 80 beats a minute with a nice repetitive plethysmograph waveform on the O2SAT screen, then we can quickly determine that the ECG screen is incorrect and that's false information that you're getting. That's electrical interference from poor electrode placement or an electrode that's being pulled off or something along those lines. So usually by looking at the patient and what are they acting like, what is their status, looking at other vital sign parameters, we can tell if what we're seeing on an ECG screen is correct or not. Now, when people are in a sinus rhythm, we have a P, a QRS, and a T wave. And the PQRST um, is a repetitive fashion, usually, uh, very regular in adults. In children, the ECG um, heart rate can vary slightly up and down in a slight irregular pattern, which repeats itself. And it's usually linked to the child's breathing and changes in inter intrathoracic pressures uh, as they breathe in and out, affecting the sinus note. In adults, it tends to be very regular. Um, and in a healthy adult with no ECG issues as far as the electrical conduction through their heart, uh, we should have a small upright P wave in lead two, quickly followed by a very narrow QRS that occurs in about 0.12 seconds or less and then by some shape usually of an upright T wave. Um, this would indicate a normal sinus rhythm. Now, of course, in a podcast, I'm not gonna get into ECG interpretation at any level, but I'm gonna give you a couple of hints to uh, what would indicate that you do have potentially a very bad rhythm on the screen um, and that you need to check the patient immediately. Uh, I mentioned this when we talked about pulse eximetry that the sinus node of the human heart is not really like a Ferrari car. It cannot go from zero to 60 instantly or say from a heart rate of 70 to 180 in two split seconds, all right? When we catch very paroxysmal heart rate changes, uh, either through the pulse oximetry, uh, pulse rate being detected or through ECG, those that usually indicate that we have a complete taking over of the sinus node from some type of re-entry circuit, uh, which is a little re-entry circuit of loop of electricity feeding back at it on itself. And this new pacing site takes over at a rate uh, that's very, very high in comparison to the baseline uh, normal sinus rhythm rate that the PC, uh, sorry, that the patient was in moments ago. 
So what I mean by this is you would be listening to the heart rate on and, and seeing the ECG going along nicely, say at 70 beats a minute and you're in the middle of a sedation case. And then just like that, you have a tachycardia alarm and you hear the pulse oximeter, uh, pulse rate beeping or the heart rate beeping suddenly at a very fast regular rate. This usually would indicate that we have what's called a tachyarrhythmia, an abnormal fast heart rate rhythm that is no longer coming from the sinus node. And due to the very sudden heart rate change, that's one of the diagnostic tools that's used to determine that that rhythm is no longer uh, a sinus-based rhythm. The two most common ones that we will see, um, or a couple of the most common ones, one would be uh, a rhythm I mentioned in our last talk, a supraventricular tachycardia, uh, more technically known as an AV nodal reentry tachycardia. And it's a reentry loop of electricity that starts up in the area of the junction using what are called accessory pathways. Uh, that allow electricity to move uh, from the lower and upper chambers without using the junction. And it sets up a little tiny circular loop which creates a narrow QRS complex tachycardia that comes on very suddenly and very, typically at rates of about 160 to 220, 225 beats a minute. So there is a very, very precipitous sudden heart rate change. It's often felt by patients in other situations where they're not actually sedated. Um, so anytime you hear a very sudden um, precipitous heart rate change to a tachyarrhythmia, definitely immediately look at the monitor. All right, and, um, and one possible rhythm you would see is a narrow QRS rhythm called a supraventricular tachycardia. It's perfectly regular, again, typically in around 180 beats a minute with a very sudden onset. A more dangerous rhythm that you could see on looking up at the monitor screen would be where we have a rapid, wide QRS rhythm um, called ventricular tachycardia. In that situation, you could have a patient who's even pulseless, requiring immediate CPR and immediate defibrillation. Or you could have a patient who is still producing cardiac output in their VTAC, some even stable in nature, meaning they are producing adequate cardiac output. So if they were not sedated, they would actually be able to be awake talking to you with a stable blood pressure. And then we have another slice of paper patient population that would actually be in what we call an unstable ventricular tachycardia, where they are alive, but they have marginal cardiac output. They may have altered level of consciousness. They may have things like chest pain, shortness of breath, dizziness, and of course, a low blood pressure. These patients also are in a, an emergency situation truly and need to be brought back into a sinus rhythm as soon as possible. So by just looking at the monitor and seeing the width of the QRS and how fast the heart rate is going, even if you can't name the rhythm, you can certainly tell that you have a dangerous rhythm situation on your hands. I read an article recently where there was a discussion about preventative health care and the fact that anyone in the realm of IV, moderate and deep sedation and GA, that we should always be monitoring our patient's ECG as a preventative healthcare measure. 
even if we just at times pick up abnormalities, which otherwise would have been totally undetected, and from that point get to refer the patient to their family doctor or to a specialist. So, um, so that's an interesting thought. Just like in a lot of dental practices, we'll do blood pressures from time to time um, as just part of our overall health care um, for each patient and uh, as preventative health care to uh, detect uh, issues with things like hypertension. So uh, the other thing I just want to mention then on ECG is we're usually m monitoring lead two. So we have a three or five lead wire cable that comes to the patient. And what we're actually interpreting from that information is just the name of the rhythm, which incorporates two major factors. One, where does the rhythm come from? Where is the uh, pacing site of that rhythm? That's always in the name. And then also in ECG interpretation names is, the, um, is a description of the rate of the rhythm. So is it bradycardic? Is it uh, tachycardic? Is it accelerated? Um, so there's a variety of terms there. Now, once I was teaching a group of miners, yes, people who go underground, um, and I was hired to go to this mine site to teach their first aid people about what information can be gleaned from the ECG screen of their AED. And what they really wanted to know is, well, um, can we learn anything that at least would tell us whether we really need to get a helicopter to take our patient out, or could we take them out by ground? And I didn't want to get into too much about that decision-making process. But what I came up with is, well, I can teach you what's dangerous on an ECG, what makes a rhythm dangerous without teaching you how to name the rhythm. And the rules are actually quite simple. And this is what I say to all dentists, all people who don't do ECG interpretation day in and day out. So their skills are poor or very rusty and they're unlikely to be comfortable trying to interpret an ECG because that's one of the reasons a lot of dentists will try to avoid monitoring ECG on a patient because it intimidates them. Well, here are the rules generally. What makes an ECG dangerous is links back to what type of cardiac output does a rhythm create. So, if the QRS of a rhythm is nice and narrow, like you would see normally, and that would be three or less little tiny boxes on an ECG paper, and that, that adds up to no greater than point, 0 0.12 seconds, then that means that the rhythm is supraventricular. And if that narrow QRS is running anywhere from about 50 to 130 actually, that in most ASA 1 through 3 patients, that would not cause them to be unstable as far as their cardiac output. So it really doesn't matter what the name of the rhythm is. So I'll give you a bunch of rhythms that could easily have, say, a heart rate of 75 beats a minute, a normal sinus rhythm, a rhythm called atrial flutter occurring in a um, 4 to 1 ratio, uh, atrial fibrillation running about 75, um, a junctional rhythm running about 75. Um, the list is quite long of rhythms that produce a narrow QRS and could be running at that heart rate. And guess what? At a heart rate of 75, all of those patients should be able to look me in the eye and say, how are you doing? Can you get me a cup of coffee if I was, say, working in a hospital? It doesn't matter the name of the rhythm. 
any rhythm that produces a heart rate of approximately 50 to 130, say, and those numbers could even vary further when a patient's laying supine at rest, and the QRS is nice and narrow, the electrical activity of that heart on its own is not enough to create an issue with their cardiac output that would be life-threatening. So all of those rhythms that I mentioned, about four or five of them, as long as the heart rate is normal, so they have something called a normal diastolic filling time, then that would mean then that they should be awake talking to me with a good blood pressure. The only thing missing in any of those rhythms would be the P wave possibly and the production of something called atrial kick. But again, people without the ability to form atrial kick by the, uh, the coordination of the atria contracting slightly ahead of the ventricles, at rest, the loss of atrial kick alone in a relatively healthy patient to start with is not enough to compromise cardiac output. So whether they have a P wave or not is not really that relevant for a patient at rest. And I'm just talking about management at that time, not talking about whether they could have a deep-seated heart condition, a cardiac abnormality, etc. I'm just saying at the moment, should that rhythm cause instability? And the answer is even without P waves, as long as the QRS is narrow, as long as the rhythm is somewhat normal between 50 and 130-ish, there's no reason that they should be um, in any emergent situation as far as their cardiac output goes. Now on the flip side, here's what makes a rhythm dangerous. Rhythms that are too fast. Any rhythm over about 150 beats a minute definitely can be dangerous in the sense of we have something called inadequate filling time for the chambers to fill up with blood during diastole before they contract again. And that starts to have a negative input on the amount of blood the heart is pumping, cardiac output. And of course, any heart that is beating too slow. So any heart that's beating less than about 50 beats a minute, there's definitely the potential uh, for the cardiac output to be compromised because of course heart rate is one of the two main components of cardiac output. Cardiac output is equal to stroke volume times heart rate. So of course if the heart is beating at 20 beats a minute, even if you have an optimal stroke volume of say 80 milliliters of blood, uh, 20 times 80 is only uh, a cardiac output of one point, um, uh, what is that, two times eight, so 1.6 liters a minute and that's grossly inadequate. So heart rates that beat too slow, that's one rule for what makes a heart uh, rhythm dangerous. Or a rhythm that's going too fast, particularly quite fast, well over 150, that will significantly affect cardiac output in a patient. So those are the two uh, first two rules of what makes an ECG dangerous. The other one is width of the QRS. If someone has a big, large, wide QRS, the electrics are abnormal in their timing, and so is the mechanical contraction of the heart chamber itself. So what we generally find is if we had two patients with an identical rhythm, but the only difference is the patient with a wide QRS and one has a narrow QRS, typically the person with the wide QRS would have poorer cardiac output than the same patient who producing the exact same rhythm with a narrow QRS because the mechanics of the heart are very precisely timed. And when the ventricle is depolarizing abnormally and slower, uh, we typically have less stroke volume for any given beat. So the worst rhythms you can get then are one, really slow with a wide QRS, 
two really fast with a wide QRS. So examples of those, for the, of those two rhythms is that for the slow rhythm, there's a rhythm called a third degree heart block as an example. Another one called a idioventricular rhythm. These rhythms can produce very poor to non-existent um, cardiac output at times. So that would trigger uh, me to be extremely concerned, even if I can't name the rhythm. I see a really slow heart rate on the screen for an adult, and even more urgent if it's a really slow heart rate in a child, um, that's dangerous. If the QRS is wide and not even narrow, that's even more concerning. On the flip side, uh, a really common rhythm which has a big wide QRS and is quite fast would be ventricular tachycardia, the one I just mentioned earlier. And of course, that's a very dangerous rhythm. It's electrically unstable and it can produce uh, very poor and even non-existent cardiac output requiring CPR and immediate defibrillation. So, and then the very last factor in the list of what makes an ECG dangerous without even being able to name it is the loss of atrial kick. The loss of a properly timed upright P wave occurring before each QRS. But again, that really doesn't affect cardiac output near as much as the other rules. Too fast, too slow, and wide QRS. Now I have to give a shout out to Tracy Burrell. Tracy has a company called Skillstat. And uh, Skillstat specializes in the medical side of a lot of this type of training, uh, especially uh, Tr Tracy's company. Uh, they teach a ton of ACLS courses, PALS courses, uh, ECG interpretation courses. And Tracy and I teach most of his ECG interpretation courses. And the too fast, too slow, wide QRS, etc., really also comes into play in what are called uh, the six second ECG course and um, the quick steps, as they're called, to interpreting ECGs. So shout out to Tracy at Skillstat, uh, because um, what I just explained physiology-wise about what makes an ECG dangerous without being, a name it, without being able to name it, actually uh, also um, is a key piece of the way we teach ECG interpretation um, in the six-second ECG course. Okay, so... Um, Enough on ECGs, let's look at our most important parameter of all in vital signs, respirations. So in dealing with respirations, we have a multiple ways to determine uh, a patient's respiratory rate. Now the classic method is just to look at their chest and count their breaths. Um, the downside of just manually counting breaths is that Human beings are not as good at multitasking as we think, so therefore we often are not paying close enough attention to, to actually notice when there's a change in the status of the breathing of the patient. They're often covered in blankets and things like that. Um, they have bibs on, they have trays swung out over their chest. So during dental sedation, I'm really not an advocate of believing that a dental sedation team at all times knows the respiratory status of their patient just by visually looking at the patient, etc. That time and time again, I can catch a team uh, where the patient is having apnea and the team is unaware of it until I say something. And even for myself, I'm not detecting that apnea by looking at their chest. I'm detecting it from end-tidal CO2 monitoring, something we talked about in the first two podcasts of our series. So 
counting respirations from looking at the patient has very big pitfalls and the biggest being that you actually cannot pay close enough attention to it since you're involved in actual dental surgery, dental restorations, etc. Um, the second method I'm going to mention, I mentioned uh, in the Entitled CO2 talks, I believe, which is when we hook a patient up to the ECG side of the monitor, the three leads can be used to measure the electrical resistance across a patient's chest, which is called thoracic impedance, and how that changes as they breathe in and out. The main problem with this modality of counting respirations is that it's really um, prone to having artifact interference of the signal as a patient moves about in the chair as dental instruments, etc., are being used. So if you hook them up and they lay perfectly still in a dental chair or in a bed in a hospital, yep, I can get their respiratory rate. But any movement at all creates a lot of large deflections on the waveform that's counted. And often you'll have a lot of tachypnea, rapid breathing, false alarms going on that aren't real. The other thing is that it truly only measures chest wall motion, not the movement of air in and out of the lungs. So example, if I'm heavily sedated and I'm choking on something, like a throat pack, which has happened in deep sedation, and there have been deaths from this type of situation, the machine's only going to tell me about the chest wall motion. So if I block my airway and I still have respiratory drive, I'm going to make heaving motions attempting to draw in air, even though I'm not able to actually have any air draw come in to my airways if I have a blocked airway from, I say, a, a soaked um, a gauze, a throat pack. So the machine's going to continue to say that I'm breathing. It's going to give a respiratory rate. As, until I stop all respiratory efforts, it's going to still give a respiratory rate. So there are certain pitfalls to what is called transthoracic impedance method of measuring breathing, which is going on between two out of the three ECG electrodes placed across the patient's chest. Um, so then we come down to the absolute golden standard for a machine to be able to detect the frequency of breaths of a patient and even information on the quality of the breaths of the patient. Are they actually adequately ventilating? And that comes down to the good old standard that we've been talking about heavily in the area of dental sedation in the last couple of years as it's really come in as a new line in the sand safety standard and that is something called captainography or end tidal CO2 monitoring. Now I'm not going to go into it in any detail here because we have two talks, episodes one and two, that specifically talk all about um, how to use, how to understand and how to interpret uh, captainography. So in short, entitled CO2 uh, monitoring the machine uh, uh, samples um, the patient's exhaled and inhaled breaths. And as it detects CO2 being exhaled from the patient, that is detected by a sensor um, 
either right at the location of the breath going, like on the end of an endotracheal tube, or more commonly in sedation through a nasal prong system where the machine is sucking a small sample of the gas back for analysis. And from the number of exhaled rising CO2 uh, um, uh, humps in the graph that we count, we get a respiratory rate. So as they breathe out, the, uh, the amount of uh, CO2 measured as a partial pressure um, goes up from basically zero as they're breathing in, and then it'll go all the way up and it'll peak at the very end of the, um, of the slight upward slope of the waveform. It'll peak at a number between usually 35 and 45 millimeters of mercury. As soon as the patient breathes in, that uh, line on the graph will plummet back down to zero. So the, the number of waves counted per minute gives you the respiratory rate of the patient. The amount of CO2, the concentration or partial pressure of CO2 in each exhaled breath also gives you key information. And what I discussed in those first two talks was that if a patient breathes too much, an example being hyperventilation, they'll actually drive the partial pressure of arterial CO2 down we'll say that they're blowing off too much CO2 is the lingo that we use. If they're not breathing enough, they will start to retain too much CO2 and their arterial blood level will rise. In a relatively healthy patient, which most of our patients are in sedation, ASA 1 and 2s, there's only about a 3 to 5 millimeter mercury difference between arterial PaO2 or sorry, PaCO2 and then what we get in the exhaled breaths, the partial pressure of exhaled CO2 and tidal CO2. So if I'm not breathing adequately, even though I'm breathing enough breaths per minute, but the volume of the breath is inadequate, I would slowly see an increasing end tidal CO2 value, not just the respiratory rate. So over time, I might have started with a patient who was breathing at um, a rate of 12 and an end tidal CO2 of say 38. And now we've sedated them and they're becoming oversedated. Now the respiratory rate drops to 10, say, which is still acceptable. And we really might not really know that there's any real issue going on. But in my example, say, we start to notice that the end tidal CO2 partial pressure starts to rise. And after 15 minutes, it's 48. After another five minutes and continuing bolusing of medications, it even tops 50. Even though the respiratory rate is not really indicating a major issue, the fact that the concentration, the partial pressure of the gas is rising up to abnormal levels would indicate that they are hypoventilating, that they have inadequate ventilations. On the other hand, if they're hyperventilating, we would see end tidal CO2 partial pressure values go down lower and lower over time. And easily they can be down to 19, 25 millimeters of mercury in someone who's hyperventilating. So the, the partial pressure of the exhaled CO2 gas gives us information about someone's breathing. And of course, airway respiratory rate, which is the respiratory rate detected from captainography, is the golden standard to know whether our patient is breathing or not and how frequently they're breathing. And it doesn't get distracted. And um, you cannot have a patient having apnea and an end tidal CO2 alarm will not, or, or monitor will not tell you that there's a problem. So you can have some false uh, alarms, all right, but there'll be alarms relating to when a patient is breathing 
and the machine tells you they're not breathing. When you flip that around, we don't have alarms of that nature. So it will always detect apnea in a patient and it does it very early. It does it much earlier than um, pulse oximetry. Pulse oximetry can be delayed by multiple moment, minutes like I talked about in our last podcast where entitled CO2 tells you that there's a breathing issue very early, much earlier than, um, uh, than pulse oximetry, so early that I sort of say that you're learning about the breathing issue well before any emergency is developing at all and you have lots of time to fix the situation. Okay, so respirations by counting visually, respirations by the transthoracic impedance method using the ECG electrodes to give you a respiratory rate. That's something we inhibit on our machines that we sell because we only sell machines with entitled CO2 um, and that's the activated respiratory count mechanism that we use, not the one that's gained from ECG impedance. Um, and, um, and then ECG and some of the things we can learn from ECG um, and why we should hook our patients up to ECG. Um, it's important as a preventative measure, it's important to help keep up your ECG skills by looking at ECGs constantly and seeing the, the differences and noticing the patient in atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter, uh, noticing um, sinus bradys and tachys and the odd other arrhythmia. Um, that's what helps keep up your skills. It's good patient optics. And even if you can't name the rhythm, you can identify dangerous rhythms. And again, if the ECG is showing a rhythm that's going really fast, all right, over 150 beats a minute, that's potential to compromise the patient's cardiac output. Any rhythm that starts to go well below 50 for an adult, compromising of cardiac output. Add on top of that a big wide QRS indicating poor electrical conduction through the ventricles and also possibly poor mechanics of ejection of blood from the ventricles that on top of everything else adds to the equation of potential for an ECG rhythm to be grossly compromising a patient. The last item that compromises an ECG um, or compromises cardiac output relating to ECG interpretation is of course the loss of atrial kick, which is something that can't really be explained too easily here in a podcast. So that's it for our two talks on understanding vital signs. I hope you've enjoyed them. My name is Michael Dare, and again, join us at our Facebook group, All Things Sedation, or come and have a look at the website, uh, www.dental-ed.com. And it's been a pleasure to uh, talk with you today. Thank you.